leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Cofactor Genomics believes RNA provides a better means than DNA and other biomarkers to diagnose disease, monitor health, and enhance treatment decisions. The company's predictive immune modeling provides insight into a cancer patient's immune response at the tumor to determine whether an individual is likely to respond to an immunotherapy. We spoke to Jared Glasscock, founder and CEO of Cofactor Genomics, about its RNA diagnostics, the case for the use of multidimensional biomarkers, and the challenges it faces with physician adoption and reimbursement. Jarrett, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, uh, Daniel. I, I appreciate the time. We're going to talk about precision medicine, cofactor genomics, and its RNA diagnostics. Let's begin with RNA. What's the benefit of RNA over DNA when it comes to tumor profiling? So in a word, uh, dynamic is probably the most uh, important word. Uh, RNA is dynamic. It's uh, part of this area of functional genomics. Um, it's uh, a molecule that responds to multiple different factors, including infection and onset of disease. And when we think about that in the context of DNA, in the majority of cases, uh, the DNA that we're born with um, is the DNA that we die with. And, um, you know, uh, DNA in many times is used as a, as a risk factor uh, that we will someday develop disease, uh, whereas RNA being dynamic and more representative of what's going on in the body right now um, actually gives us insight into when that onset of disease actually happens. One of the challenges with immunotherapies is knowing which patients will benefit from them. How likely is it today that a patient treated with an immunotherapy will actually benefit from it? Yes, that's. Uh, I think there's been so much excitement around immunotherapy, and that's probably represented by, I think when we started down this path, there were about 500 clinical trials involving immunotherapy and immunotherapy combinations. Um, today, there's uh, closer to 2,500, so there's been about a 500% increase in the last uh, two to three years. And what has been found is that many times if you uh, know about the tumor's immune composition, 
what immune cells are present and active in the tumor, uh, that is sometimes a very good indication on whether a patient is going to respond to an immunotherapy or not. So um, that that fact right there is exactly what we're leveraging. Um, and the case is if we can use RNA to uh, predict the immune composition, then we can leverage that immune composition information to predict whether somebody's going to be a responder or not. And what's the consequence of having a high rate of failure with these therapies today? I would say that it's, in the case when there's multiple options for a patient, um, multiple different treatment options, uh, the consequence of not choosing the right treatment is, you know, wasted hope for the patient. It's wasted time. Uh, it's wasted money for the payer. And um, really, in many cases, it's the exact opposite of what we hope for uh, for precision medicine. It's um, it's imprecise medicine uh, at the end of the day. And so, you know, the hope is 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 among many options and among. Um, um, you know, many paths that a patient can take for their care, if we can do a better job at predicting which path is going to be the most successful, then that's what gets us ultimately to precision medicine. Uh, how does your diagnostic work? What, what are you looking for the RNA to actually tell you? Sure. So that's, that's, a, that's an important question. So I think one of the um, important aspects to understand is that our team in particular spent uh, a number of years uh, modeling what the RNA looks like out of, of individual immune cells. So we spent a, quite a bit of investment in time and money and, and expertise on defining what is the transcriptome, what does the RNA look like for T cells, for B cells, for macrophages, and essentially have created a database of what these purified immune cells look like. So in terms of how does the assay work, how does the test work, we um, isolate the RNA from a, either a resected tumor or a tumor biopsy. And um, our assay actually works with, uh, with formal and fixed paraffin-embedded samples, which is the vast majority of, of tumor samples are stored in this way, uh, mostly for uh, imaging and pathology reasons. We isolate this RNA, and as you might imagine, this RNA is a mixture of multiple things, right? It's a mixture of um, the tumor cells, the immune cells, you know, all different, you know, mixture of everything going on in that tumor. And we take that mixture of uh, what's represented by that RNA, and we put it in the context of these purified uh, immune models. And um, what our... our software does is actually does the uh, interpretation of that to deliver what the composition of those uh, immune cell uh, immune cells are in that tumor. And once again, um, you know, that's exactly what we're trying to find out is if we know if um, somebody's a responder to a given therapy or a non-responder, is there a tie between that immune composition and whether in the future we can accurately predict who is going to be a responder and who's not going to be a responder. You're using what you call multi-dimensional biomarkers. What's the case for using multiple biomarkers? Ah, so I think so many of us are very familiar with um, 
lab tests and assays that are usually measuring one one analyte and whether it's one DNA SNP or one protein marker or even the expression of one gene. And what multidimensional biomarkers are doing is they're they're simply just measuring multiple different analytes and they're bringing that together into one model which um, really mimics what we see in in both biology and in disease is that disease is uh, is is uh, the combination of multiple small changes within a biological system giving rise to a disease phenotype and what we've seen in our work and, and you know, many others' work, um, quite frankly, going all the way back to systems biology uh, more than 20 years ago, is um, if you can capture the small signals and bring all of those small signals together, it becomes a very statistically significant signal to identify disease and identify um, and predict uh, what a phenotype will be. How broadly applicable is your test? Is it is it usable for any tumor type or immunotherapy, or is it validated for specific indications or specific therapies? Yeah. So in terms of um, this is an immune you know profiling test, so it's really reporting on the immune content in a given sample, and so in that sense, it's very broadly applicable. You can apply it to you know many. Um, uh, not only cancer types, but even outside of cancer, you can have a readout of what that immune composition is, and whether that be in solid tumors, whether it be in the blood, um, you know, many different instances and in, in different tissues. Um, I think in terms of whether, you know, it plays out that the immune composition is an important factor of predicting response to some of these given therapies, that's exactly what we're in the thick of right now is finding that out. And the way, you know, really the only way we find that out is is, um, is kicking off studies like we have uh, announced with a number of partners, including, you know, the National Cancer Institute, uh, Fred Hutch, MD Anderson, uh, Washington University, a number of these groups that we're working with to perform these studies uh, to find out whether knowing the immune composition will actually uh, be able to tell us whether we can predict responders or non-responders in different cancers, you know. Like any test, we don't suspect it'll be the end-all, be-all for every possible um, disease or indication, Uh, but that's exactly the path we're on now is to find out uh, which areas it's extremely powerful in informing. You're incorporating machine learning into the analysis of the test. What role does interpretation play in the quality of the results? Mm. So it, it's it's going to be you know we have like any distribution of signals we're 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 going to have this distribution of what the signal looks like from the responders and the distribution and what it looks like from the non-responders. In an ideal world, we want no overlap between those two distributions. Um, but in in reality, we suspect some level of overlap between those distributions and. You know, that's exactly what the machine learning helps us identify is, is um, you know, in which distribution do we uh, find this patient falls into, most likely a responder or non-responder, and can we assign some level of certainty uh, to that, uh, to that uh, designation? What are the challenges you face in terms of getting physicians to use the test? 
I think any new test, um, is, you know, requires a solid technical validation, right? You have to have uh, published, peer-reviewed, uh, you know, uh, publications describing the assay and how it was built and, and what validations were done in order to, to show its, you know, validity. Um, secondly, as you move on past technical validations, um, you know, these physicians want to see the the use of the technology within their indication of interest. And so those publications within those those indications of interest are important. And that ties back to the studies that I just uh, referenced that we're, that we're in the thick of right now. I would say lastly, um, you know, every time we've seen a test and a new test or new technology come to market and um, ultimately focused on adoption within the clinic, it requires you know, education of that physician as well, too. And that education may be um, engagement with the, you know, the physicians uh, that are practicing in those certain indications. Uh, but it also relates to uh, informative and um, very easy to understand reporting of the results and what are the implications of those results. You're using a CLIA model. Is reimbursement any kind of a, a challenge or barrier to adoption for you? Yes. Yeah, so reimbursement, you know, you cover the other side of the coin. You want to be able to show, you know, significant value to the patient. Um, but at the same time, to be able to get reimbursement, you want to be able to show cost savings. And in an area like immune oncology, where many of the cancers uh, have something like 20% or, you know, 25% response rate to some of these new therapies, uh, paired with the fact that these therapies are north of $100,000, you know, per treatment, um, you know, the, the entire treatment process, um, it becomes a, you know, a very compelling, um, aspect for, for the payers as well as, as the patients, you know, those, potentially sometimes 80% of the patients that won't respond to the immunotherapy, uh, they want to be placed on something else. It it's, seems to me it's not a tough argument to make if if the test works. What have you done to validate it and to demonstrate to both payers and providers that this is something of value? Absolutely. And, and this is the path that we've been on, which is, you know, working in the industry to um, really put the technology under a microscope and, um, you know, work with groups like CAP and CAP-CLIA accreditation, which, uh, you know, the technology has been, um, has uh, passed CAP-CLIA accreditation. And in order to do that, we had to show uh, in samples of known, you know, of known uh, immune content, how does the technology perform? Not only does it, how does it perform, but then when we compare it to what would be considered a gold standard, things like flow cytometry, our IHC, uh, what is the correlation between our new technology and, and, and those uh, types of technologies? And the differences that are seen, you know, how do we explain those differences? So that's been a large amount of work in the earlier part of the year was putting that study together, which is currently in review and uh, potentially maybe released by the time this comes out. Uh, but that's that was definitely the first step, and uh, follow on from that step was the studies of um, in the context of, of given indications, these you know indications that have low 
response rate. We've been talking about the test from the point of view of its clinical utility. I suspect it has value for drug development, particularly with trial sponsors that may want to identify likely responders to their therapies. What's the attitude among drug developers about applying this test during clinical development? Yeah, the thing I think about when you ask that question is um, some of these aspects of label expansion. Uh, We've seen immune oncology enter into the market in some of these indications that were, you know, somewhat low-hanging fruit for immune oncology uh, therapies to provide some value. But as things move out of those indications into other indications, um, say, for instance, these indications that have, you know, less than 30% response rate in that given cancer type, uh, then, you know, it really doesn't make sense for these drugs to be applied um, without an accurate test to predict who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. So that's what I really think about as as the market continues to mature and as these these um, new therapies and these new innovative drugs come to market. We've seen uh, a growing emergence of drug labels that identify the use of a drug tied to a specific genetic mutation. Do you think that the future will lead to biomarkers of the type that you're looking at or multiple indicators like that going forward? I believe so. I think the entire industry is is undergoing this type of change. You know, we've seen this with with multiple companies that are bringing uh, RNA-based information um, to the clinic. And, you know, this is referred to many different ways. Some folks, you know, like us, we we really think of it as a multidimensional biomarker or uh, sometimes it's referred to as a multi-analyte biomarker. other times I've heard to you know heard of it referred to as a um, uh, classifier, and um, you know DNA in many ways has trained us to think about this very binary model, right? Is the mutation present or is it absent? And if it's present, then you're you know you're positive for this test. And I suspect there will be many ways with what we had to do with our own team that has been in genomics for you know more than 20 years is uh, we have to retrain our brain to think um, differently than just that very binary model that, that DNA has, has uh, somewhat conditioned us to think about. So I suspect there will be an RNA-based model, a match, you know, to a given profile or a given, you know, um, health expression model, as we call them, uh, in, in, in terms of RNA models. And then when they become predictive in terms of responder or non-responder, we refer to those as predictive immune models in the case of our work. And I suspect there will be some, um, some report of, uh, on, these, um, uh, on these labels uh, in terms of to what level or threshold, specific threshold, a patient sample has to match a given model. Jared Glasscock, founder and CEO of Cofactor Genomics. Jared, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.